Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Stack Waddy game, Mark, you've got one. I've got one, which I've just written, and uh, it's a bit out there, but let's try it, okay? And I was reading this piece, uh, which concluded that of Montreal, a band from Athens, Georgia, were, and surely this is a coveted title, the most pretentious group in history. (laughs) (laughs) That's and, uh, fighting, fighting. And it's fighting talk, isn't it? Uh, we wrote about them in Word. I don't remember them being that out of order, actually, but I, I had a look at some of their song titles, and it is richly deserved. So in a one-off pretension sound clash special, I give you song by the achingly affected rock band of Montreal or artwork by Damien Hurst. <laughs> oh, okay? very good. Okay? Very good. So number one is, upon settling on the frozen island, <laughs> Lekithin presents Claude and Coquilco with his animal creation. Oh, is so- that the work of the Georgian songbirds or the bad boy of conceptual art? Georgian songbirds. It is. It is. It's from their album, Coquio Asleep in the Poppies, a variety of whimsical verse, which they will kickstart any party. <laughs> Absolutely sure. Okay, second one. The physical impossibility of death in the mind of someone living. Uh, is that it is it is Hearst it is indeed the cash minting paint wrangler it's the famous shark in fact glass painted paint steel silicon monofilament shark formaldehyde solution seven million pound price Uh, to you okay is this the work of the ostentatious guitar slingers or the gorilla sculptor beautiful artemis thor neptune odin delusional sapphic inspirational hypnosis Oh dear God! Uh, it's your band of Montreal. No, no, it's Hearst. It's oh, Hearst. really? It's gloss household paint on canvas. Isn't that bizarre? <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? Okay, number four: the hopeless opus or the great battle of the unfriendly ridiculous. This is a musical interpretati. Overarching board treaders or irksome art merchant. <laughs> Overarching board treaders. Yeah, it is. It is the mighty of Montreal. <laughs> They're extraordinary sometimes, they are, aren't they? Really. Absolutely amazing. Okay, yeah. just got a couple more here, or three more. Uh, authentic Pyrrhic remission. Is that the elitist tunesmiths or the slappable dauber? <laughs> <laughs> 
Slappable Dauber. Slappable Dauber. No, no, it's the band. It's oh, from their God. album uh, Paralytic Storks. Dear <laughs> Lord. I know. Okay. Some comfort gained from the acceptance of the inherent lies in everything. Flatulent troubadours or UK's richest living artists? <laughs> <laughs> flatulent troubadours no, it's her it's her glass <laughs> painted steel silicon acrylic plastic cable ties cows and formaldehyde solution we have two to go schizophrenogy sorry schizophrenogenesis the florid jonglers or the irritating spiff florid jonglers uh no that's hers too you're right i think it is. yes it is hers yes 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 uh yes it's a uh, more um uh, stuff from their um in, in formaldehyde and uh, the last one is is uh is nikki coco and the invisible tree overrated over 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 educated that's hurst on, that's hurst no it's hurst. of montreal from the, album, oh, the gay parade there it is so i came there well, it? it's an education it's an education isn't it it's absolutely some titles exist amazing yeah. So, so what, a, what a selection of toe tappers from of, of Montreal. Yes, I must I must put them down on my shopping list. Yeah, um, yeah. Alex, have you read about the story of uh, how Brian Robson mailed himself from Australia uh, over 50 years ago? Do you know the story? No, that's wonderful. Okay. Better than Ryanair, surely. <laughs> this is... This is a guy... This is a great story, this. this. is a guy who emigrated from Wales, I think, at the age of 19, uh, and he went to Australia in the days when you could go to Australia for, I think, £10, didn't you? Couldn't you mark it? Yeah, you could, that's right. You talk about £10 palms, palms, didn't they? They were so keen to uh, to get people to emigrate. So he left Cardiff in 1964 when he was 18 to take a job. It's It's got all kinds of interesting aspects this. To take a job as a ticket inspector for Victorian Railways in Melbourne. And the idea in those days, you could, you know, apply for a job as a ticket inspector in Melbourne and then go all the way to Melbourne and get it, you know what I mean, and take up the job. Anyway, he didn't like it. Job was dull. That was the <laughs> first surprise. Job was slightly dull. I thought ticket inspecting would be endlessly <laughs> rewarding. <laughs> he said it was difficult to make friends, which strikes me as slightly odd because Australians are very gregarious people, aren't they? I would have thought it was relatively easy, you know, to... Um... But anyway, he also disliked Australia, which is kind of slightly unusual. So yeah. within a year, he well, decided... Well, I don't know. Seeing as every, every, every um, unit of wildlife is designed to kill you very quickly. <laughs> that is true. That is true. I can understand that. There are more for all the other advantages. <laughs> yes, that is true. Anyway, he decided he wanted to come back, but he couldn't afford to come back, you know, because it was expensive, and he had to repay the uh, you know, what it would have cost for him to get out. Because he there. worked out that his annual salary and the amount that it cost him to live that he would never manage it, would he? <laughs> if he, he, he couldn't change his job, and he said, "I will never get home." So, as you explained, Dave, he so what he, he saw an advert for Pickford's, the removal firm, who claimed to be able to move anything. And so he decided that he was going to he was going to purchase a crate measured in 36 by 30 by 38, just large enough to sit in with his knees pressed against his chest. And he booked passage from Melbourne to, by, to Sydney to London with the assistance of a couple of mates. Now, so far, so mad. OK, and now he is 19 years old. 
which he says in his defense many years later, because he's still alive, this chap, that he says most people are a bit stupid when they're 19. We'll part that for a moment, shall we? Because I think that's, a, that's another podcast in itself. Anyway, he decides, he gets into his crate with his supplies, Alex. Are you ready? Okay. A hammer, a suitcase, a pillow, a litre of water, a flashlight, and an empty bottle for obvious, obvious pur purposes. purposes. Yeah. So he knows that he's going to be in this packing case for could be three days or something like that. He's got no sandwiches. <laughs> no, he doesn't take food. That's good for there's no food in that thing. No, he's just got some water. And, it, you know, because the idea is that yeah, water is the thing you need most. Presumably he feeds up first. But anyway, he's in there. His plan is that when he arrives at Heathrow, <laughs> that they'll open the box and he'll be able to walk out and just merge into the people of London. The idea that, he says, yeah. there wasn't a lot of security in Heathrow in those days. But I like to feel that if he got out of a suitcase, somebody said, hang on a second, mate, over here. <laughs> Can just just sit there for a moment while I get the police. But no, he thought no. But also, it's the idea that he's going to get out of the crate without anyone noticing. Because the crate is going to have to be open from the outside. Just, Don't mind me. Just breeze past them. Maybe anyway. you know, it, it, it's London. Nobody bats an eyelid. If I just this is it. This is this is what he says. I think it's because he came from you know came from Cardiff. I think. He said, oh, go, go to that London, the 17 million yeah, people yeah. in it or whatever he thought the population was at the time. Then, then nobody will notice another one. Anyway, here's my point. He goes in the case three days, basically three days, takes flashlight with, with him, yes, because he wants to pass the time. It's going to be fairly tedious, apart from freezing cold, boiling hot and uncomfortable in all kinds of ways. So... He realises he ought to have some reading matter with them, Alex, OK? OK. What does he take? The Bible? The Complete Weights of Shakespeare? I don't know, uh, The Lord of the Rings or uh, some War and Peace? No, he takes a book of Beatles songs. Of course. OK? <laughs> it's astonishing, because this is 1965. So, so that, there only are 50% of the available Beatles songs uh, available at the time, and and all he's got presumably is the lyrics, isn't he? And he's sitting there, so he obviously thinks, "Well, I'm a bit bored, you know. I've been, uh, been a I'll read of... Nowhere Man. I'll... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll read Love Me Do again. Yeah, and he just goes, see how, it turns, see how it turns no, out. No, 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 me too. Don't, don't tell me what happens at the end. <laughs> don't spoil it. Oh, I'll cry instead. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I do. I want to hold your hand. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you something. I think you'll understand. Yeah. <laughs> I want to hold your hand. It's absolutely amazing. So, you know, you clearly, I think it's fair to say, not the brightest lamp in the box in every in every respect. You know, going all the way to Australia for a job as a ticket inspector, which he expects to be really exciting, and then it isn't. And then posting himself back... <laughs> And then the box, and then and then the the crate, in fact, does not go direct to London. Does it? Doesn't it go no. via Los Angeles? Oh well, he, no! Yeah. He is, he thinking, is. This can't be right. You know, I've I read my Beatles book three times. I've drunk all my water. <laughs> I've had a couple of wees. You know, surely we should be there by now. Are we there yet? Oh no! <laughs> so yeah, he, he he arrived in in Los Angeles, and. Um, 
was kind of he couldn't stand up obviously not surprisingly he couldn't unfold his legs when he got out the, the packing case was he Go flying on. or sailing oh flying oh, flying. oh god sailing no that would be more than three days no no he's flying yeah yeah, it's, like that. it's not just the flight, it's the sitting around waiting to be boarded and all amazing. that. Amazing. Kind of... And you get turned yeah. upside down and all yeah. kinds of appalling things. And uh, anyway, they find him in Los Angeles. Some guy comes and peers in the hole that he got in his packing case and goes, My God, there's, God, a man there's somebody there. alive in alive here. Isn't he? That's there. right, yeah. He obviously spends a few days in hospital being recovered. And, and well, there are pictures. It's a rubber soul lyric book. <laughs> <laughs> See, they don't want to come out yet. I've, I've only got to uh, to nowhere, man. I've got I've got a girl in my life to come. I've got to stay and read a bit more. Yeah. <laughs> so the amazing thing is, he was really fortunate that they couldn't do what they really should have done at the end of this uh, misadventure, which was send him back to Australia, because they had no flights going to Australia or no spare capacity. <laughs> In that particular period of the time, room in a hold. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they got him on. They got him on. Uh, they sent him. Sent him to London, and he came. So he came back to the UK, and presumably just walked out into London and disappeared into it a crowd. Astonishing story. So you know, many years later, he's inevitably like everything. He's is there's a documentary film about this, um, which no doubt has. A reconstruction of the box and so forth, and so now he's trying to he's trying trying to trace the two men who helped him initially all those years ago. So, so nineteen year old, nineteen year olds, are they stupid? Were we oh, yeah. stupid? <laughs> are they? I mean, what, what, what do you think? I what think nineteen is probably when you hit peak stupid. Actually, <laughs> I think it's peak stupid because it's, it's, yeah. you've got a bit of independence. You can travel to places. You can go on your own, and you can go it's abroad. Stupid. You can do all that. So it's, it's exaggerated the point of absolute in, <laughs> infinity, isn't it? That's the thing. I remember my, my dad made a very wise comment about this once. <clears throat> my cousin's, uh, my first cousin's son, rode across the Atlantic. I think in his early twenties, you know. Which is an amazing thing to do. And, it is. Uh, and my, it's not really about stupidity, but it's about youth. And he said uh, he's either he said he's either incredibly courageous or enormously unimaginative. And I thought that was a really good point, you know, because a lot of a lot of your nineteen-year-old self, your younger self, is not being able to imagine what might happen. That's true. You just don't think it's going to happen. You just doesn't even cross your mind that things could go wrong. So, who fight? Who fights most wars? Nineteen-year-olds. Yeah. As Paul Hank Hardcastle, didn't he? Uh, you know, that, that famous yeah, number right. one record. It's the average age of a combat soldier, isn't it? Or in Vietnam or whatever. Yeah. was 19. You've got all this freedom, this newfound freedom, and you think you know everything. You think you've you got it figured out. <laughs> yes. And, yeah. and you, you, you know, you've reached the apex of human knowledge. Yeah. Um, and that's that's where the problem starts, really. Um, what's, that, what's, that, what's that saying about when I was 19? You know, I thought my father was the most stupid person. That's right. Many, many years later, I find he's come on a lot. Yeah, he's, come, he's really changed. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember a conversation at, uh, uh, when we were at Kew about going to rock festivals, and there were two people that had been to the Wheelie Festival, aged about 19, 18, 19, you know, and had gone without sleeping bags and without any warm clothes. It just They weren't gone in flip-flops with a bit of money. Do you know what I mean? And uh, just suddenly it got, it got dark and they were thinking, wow, I haven't got a tent. Everyone else has got a tent. You know, God, I wish I bought a jumper. <laughs> I 
We should have bought some food. Help! This is a bit grim. It had never crossed their mind it was going to get wet and cold and damp and miserable. I just think it's so funny. Oh, it's the idea. It's the peak of peak of lack of imagination. I know. It's a, it's a really good idea of your dad's. Yeah, like, yeah. Excellent. Well, it's the Grace Slick thing, isn't it? Grace Slick was on stage in um, with Jefferson Starship in 1978, which is disgraceful because if it was 1978, she would have been 38 years old. But she made some terrible comment about the Germany. They were, they were on stage oh, in Germany. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember who won the war and all? Yeah. She was sacked from the band. And she said that whole thing about, uh, you know, really that, that young people should be seen and not heard and that old people should be heard and not seen. Which I thought was rather a good point about old people. <laughs> but uh, then again, she wasn't very young at the time, so I don't know what she was talking about. Moronic. Have we forgiven her? I suppose we have. Yeah, we have. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So, Mark, repeat the story. We were talking to... Um... We're talking to Bob Stanley and Tessa Norton about their uh, their fall book uh, the other day on uh, on a crowdcast, which is now available. It's no, out there, and uh, they were very good. And you were telling the story. We we're talking about Mark Smith, Marky Smith, and his drinking, and you were telling a story about oh, well, how yes, you observed was... this at close quarters. Yeah, Select Magazine. This was 1991, <laughs> or something. Select Magazine were doing one of those round table things where it was him and Peter Hutton from The Farm and uh, Mickey Berenyi from Lush and Andrew Harrison and they were setting the world to rights. And uh, so he turned up at this thing and I don't know, we met about one o'clock in the Blue Post pub just off Carnaby Street. He must have been there for about, I suppose, maybe three, three or four hours. Now, in that time, I seem to remember, because I was counting and I was so fascinated, he drank 11 pints. But not only did he drink 11 pints, he had a single scotch off for each one, a little cheeky little chaser. And at the end of it, he seemed kind of pissed, but he didn't seem out of order or falling over or unconscious or... <laughs> I mean, I just couldn't believe it. But I suppose that's to do with just uh, being match fit, isn't it? It's just drinking every day year in year out and uh, and pickling so, yourself to the extent you can drink 11 months and not kind of you know i mean because if you don't drink i used to not drink in january and uh, i'd have a, a pint and a half on february the first and i'd be high as a kite yeah. because you've lost your kind of um you know you've lost your um whatever the word is you're you're just not used to it you know sea legs yeah sea legs precisely so you see because i don't think i've ever if i think about it really seen anybody drink that much I've been in the company of people who put a lot away and did it regularly, but eleven is an awful lot. It's an you know? enormous amount. It's two an hour for you know how well, long is that? Yeah. Four and a bit hours. You know, it's incredible, really. I and mean, these... Alex, have you ever seen drinking like that? Well, oh, here we go. A few years ago, <clears> I found course. myself uh, hooked in as the drummer of a seventies punk rock group. And these guys were all in their mid to late 50s at the time. And we did our first gig in Limoges in France. All right. And I meet them at Stansted Airport at six o'clock in the morning. Oh, the keyboardist dear. and the guitarist are both there. Yeah. The guitarist is on the pints. The keyboardist is drinking his brandy. And is it first drink of the day or is first it last drink, drink of the, the day. night? First, 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 first drink of the day? First, first okay. drink of the, yep, six o'clock in the morning. She's got always having a brandy. So, oh. yeah. Yeah, the keyboardist is having brandy. The guitarist is having 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 his pint of, of beer. Well, I think he has a couple actually. We um, we get to France and uh, we we have a lunch laid out for us um, eventually, and there's red wine and beer and whiskey all set out. And these guys are drinking nonstop all day, and I mean, Seriously? 
wow. all day. They just kept putting it away and putting it away. And, and I'm not drinking. Did they play the gig in the evening? Well, this is it. So <laughs> I don't drink before I go on stage because it's just something I I, no. just, I can't I Fair can't enough. do. It. Um, so I'm just watching them. And I'm just sort of racking up just the, the amount of the bottles of red wine and the bottles of beer and the bottle of whiskey and just everything that's going into them all li- literally all day. We get on stage at 11 o'clock at night. Right. They have been drinking and I can't stress this enough. They have been drinking literally all day from six o'clock in the morning up to 11 o'clock. We do the gig. Um, they play a brilliant gig somehow. They're fantastic. And then we go out afterwards and I start drinking then because I've finished and, you know, I I really, I fancy a couple of pints. And I stay up with the guitarist who um, uh, was, was carrying on after everybody else. And we go out to a bar together and I have to go home after maybe two hours because I can't keep up with him. And he's out until six o'clock the next morning. Where no, he's 24 hours. He's up 24 hours. Jesus he's Christ. fallen down a flight of stairs, cracked a rib, and he's still he going. And this apparently was quite normal. Good God. Yeah. So you see, because, I go on. Because oh, I was going to say that, that aren't sh- isn't it surely the case that a lot of the people who, in music, who traditionally were most associated with drinking, it was kind of part of their image in the days before we just regarded it as an illness, <laughs> you know, alcoholism and so yeah. forth. It was kind of part of the part of the rebel glamour of Keith Richards, wasn't he? That he had a bottle of Jack on his Jack on his abs, yeah, and all that kind of thing. Is it not the case that those people slightly pretended they drank more than they did? I was reading something about Sinatra the other day where people who, who, who were close to Sinatra said he never drank as much as he liked people to think he did because he was part of his part of his image. He would have an occasional one. But that he was the whole thing, was it? What did he say about Dean Martin? I spill more than he drinks or whatever it was. You know, there was a kind of rivalry, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, um, and of course, as we discussed recently, Keith has stopped nowadays, which is yeah, yes. which is absolutely remarkable. If he, if he'd really been drinking as much as he be as he appeared to be drinking over the years, but but I was going to say, surely people can't perform if they've drunk that much. But you seem to be saying on your on your um, experience in Limoges that uh, they can. Some, some people can. I think people have different constitutions. You know, I do not have the constitution to be able to do that. And I've tried. Don't get me wrong. I, can't, yeah. I cannot do it. Um, but some people can. And and this this guy, especially, I mean, he was the band's resident alcoholic, basically. He was in the pub all the time. He's had to stop now because he had he had an accident eventually. <laughs> it caught up with him, let's say. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, he had a good 50 years crack of the whip before it did. Um, and I don't think it's possible. I, I, I refuse to believe it's possible. Well, Richard it's Burton, really... Richard Burton used to go on stage and play Hamlet, you know, and he would whenever he went off, there would be he'd be drinking whiskey, which is have just you, staggering. Have really. you guys heard of Shipface yeah. Shakespeare? Of what? Shipface no. Shakespeare. Shipface I don't know. Shakespeare. So it's a theatre company, and what they do, they obviously. <laughs> I like this. Place, but they they draw names out of a hat, and one of them has to secretly get hammered. And nobody else knows who it is. But surely you can tell fairly soon. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
The what manner of town is this, <laughs> my lady? Yes. Is, is that my lord of Kent? Yes. I out, say, out, out damn spot. Who <laughs> yeah. tickets to this thing? It's, it's oh, a proper it's really legitimate fun. company. It's a great concept. Very good idea. That's brilliant. Well, Richard Burton used to say when he... Um, you know, because obviously word got around about how much he drank. And when he'd start films, he'd say, he'd say oh, no, I'm not drinking on this film. I'm only going to have a bottle of vodka a day. Because, <laughs> you know, he reckoned drinking was two or three bottles of vodka a day. You know, one a day was um, abstemious. Uh, but Keith know. Richards, I used to look at Keith Richards, you know, he had a bottle of Jack to kneel the amps. And I used to think now, either he doesn't drink very much of it, or is it possible that it's not Jack Daniels in there? Yeah. Or yeah. is it adrenaline? You know, because I can remember when you and I used to do the whistle test, when I first started doing that live TV, I was absolutely petrified. And you were just so rammed up with adrenaline. And we'd finish the show, we'd go and have our, our little after show, do you remember, with the bottle yeah. of pee at door. Yeah. And you'd have a large glass of wine, and it wouldn't make any difference at all. You wouldn't, wouldn't be remotely affected by it. And another, and another, and maybe another. And then suddenly, after about an hour, you'd relax and the adrenaline would disappear and you'd be feeling like you were hit over the back of the head with a baseball bat, you know. And I think <laughs> adrenaline sees off alcohol, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. You've got to relax, so that's possible. Yeah. But I refuse to believe that Keith Richards could have played those whole sets while swinging. I mean, you can't. You just, can you? Well, can you get that kind of accuracy? Can you get that kind of detail if you, you know... I think your knee-jerk reaction is to think, wow, he's been drinking all day, you know, but but Keith's quite a nocturnal character, isn't he? So he probably got up at four o'clock in the afternoon. He's probably yeah. had breakfast, you know, yeah. he's probably had a late start. That's probably his, that's probably his first, second drink of the day. That's yeah. true. That is true. That's true. And as I said, I did go to the Q Awards with him once and he was completely sober and didn't drink at all. And then when he got on stage, he did this whole act of, here I am, where am I, you know? And I thought, oh, well, that's, that's it. That makes sense. Yeah. This is kind of partly, you know, it's what yeah. people expect, you know. Have you ever had, I want to ask you two questions. Have you ha ever had chasers? And have you ever had something that appears in nine out of 10 American sitcoms or dramas that I see nowadays on the television? Have you ever had a shot? Because oh. I don't think I ever have had, <coughs> I've had a shot. Oh, I've yeah. had a shot, not many, because shots came in quite recently, didn't they? Shots was only, a, it's, it's a fairly recent invention. Yeah, I went through. Magic, you will have had loads, I assume. Far, far too many that I'm, that I'm proud of. I went through a phase where, where the the exact point where my night started to go wrong was when you had your first shot of Sambuca. You could trace it back to that one drink. So yeah. goes, shots, Sambuca, and you you go, yes, I will. I will have this 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 sticky. So the idea is it's a kind of supplementary thing to your basic drinking diet. You're drinking pints of beer or lager or glasses of wine and then somebody comes along with this as an additional way of yeah, taking on board alcohol more expensively more flashily with less pleasure it's a notion that you're leveling up the night or in uh, fact you're just leveling up your your uh, uh, ratio of remorse the next day <laughs> but that kind of drinking is weird i remember going to russia for the first time and we went we were having lunch in, in a russian restaurant with various people most of them Russians, actually. And they had this thing where, you know, it, you know, in Britain, you kind of, it's a glass of wine, isn't it? You drink it at your own pace and everybody very gradually kind of lifts yeah. off at the speed they choose to lift off at. But in Russia, they had between courses, you had a shot of chilled vodka. Yeah. And everyone got one and you knocked it back. 
and it was like a, a, a very abrupt and very sudden gear change. Suddenly you were all kind of cranked up to the next notch and you'd have your next course and then you'd have another one. It's a very odd thing. So you were all, it was a totally different kind of drinking. Well, in yeah, Austria, a communal thing, actually. You were all in Austria, they drink grappa. Um, in Austria, they, they drink grappa between courses. And um, that's kind of a sort of meant to be a digestive thing, but yeah, yeah. It does, it, 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 meant to be digestive. I love that. Yeah, it's good for the digestion. Yeah. <laughs> the way we convince ourselves that apple be, spirit yeah, or whatever it is is going to be good. <laughs> but after, I mean, Austrian fare is quite stodgy and 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 rich, oh. uh, and it does get rid of a food coma. So it gets rid of any lethargy after after a big meal. So right. it does it does kind of do the job. But with with shots in the UK, you know, what usually happened was somebody would. With a, with a with a wry smirk on their face, just appear at the table with a bunch of shots, and everybody would go, "Oh, you devil!" Oh, yeah, why not? not that time What's again, the worst it? that could happen? Oh, oh dear! You know, food like- coma is a new expression to me. By the way, magic. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> they were signed to Creation Records, weren't they? <laughs> <laughs> Two, more. Album. Two yeah. more from them after the news. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, so while we're talking about uh, Bob Stanley and Tessa Norton and Crowdcast and so forth, uh, the only way you can keep abreast of absolutely everything we do here, and we do lots and lots of things, is by being a patron supporter and making sure you get everything in full glowing colour and stereo sound and you get it before everybody else. And so if you want to know about that, go to patreon.com slash word in your ear. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Yeah. And I think we have some new patrons. Do we, Alex, this yes, week? We, uh, we are welcoming Christopher Ranger. Christopher Ranger. Lovely. Nice to Come see you, Christopher. Damien May. Damien May. Pull yourself up a chair. David Burns and John John Montagna, who we're, we're celebrating his birthday later oh, on. Oh, later we on. Are. We great. are indeed. Yeah, absolutely. I hope he's got the shots lined up. I'm <laughs> 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 right up. Uh, Stuart Bryant and Douglas Green, who are both annual patrons, and you get 15% discount if you... Right. Okay, so if you'd like to join them, patreon.com slash word in your ear. Now, the vexed question we have to talk about, the whole nation is talking about, (laughs) why is the Mick Jagger Dave Grohl... (laughs) Do we call it a single? I don't know. It's a tune... Why is it so terrible? 
I'm gonna I'm gonna put myself out on a limb here and say <laughs> I don't I, think it I, is I that too. Like oh, all right, well, yeah, you, I see, I do too. Yeah. It is in its defence. Explain it then. Go on, tell me. Tell for those who haven't heard it, they well, made, we, we ought to say a record. Go on. We ought to point out that the lyrics are pretty shocking. It's about lockdown, isn't it? It's about coming out of lockdown, paradise awaits, and all that. It's it's, a, it's sending up the cliches that people complained about during lockdown. It's all kind of, um, you know, uh, I took a samba class, yeah, I landed on my ass. Trying to write a tune, you better hook me up to Zoom. See my Ponzi books, teach myself to cook. I mean, shooting the vaccine, Bill Gates in my bloodstream, it's mind control. So we've got to be honest, the, the lyrics are pretty lame. And also I think a lot of people think that that's Mick Jagger, what Mick Jagger himself thinks, rather than a parody of the people who think that, you know. But... I don't know, I don't know what you think of the lyrics, uh, Magic, but I thought the tune wasn't bad. It's a yeah. 1978 kind of, you know, major chord punk rock song, isn't it, with a decent chorus? It's, it's got immense amounts of just, pace. We, we, first of all, what's it called? Easy, uh, all right, easy. all right. Yeah, yeah all right. No, uh, say it again, Alex. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> say it again. <laughs> Mark, what's it called? It's called Easy Sleazy. I know. Yeah, I can't. I can't, can't look at you when I say that. I know. I can't I, 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 look at the camera when no, it's I called can't. Easy. I, I know. I'm just trying to defend. There's the your point. It's There's not your point. Bad. You didn't even make it. You're embarrassed by it. And I, you know, I didn't make it. And I'm kind of embarrassed by it. I just think it's so lame in every respect. It aims low and it misses on every possible, <laughs> every possible level. Lyrically, you know, and here's my here's my point, Alex. Here's my point. It thinks it rocks. It doesn't. It absolutely lies on the deck. And all the whipping in the world and all the frantic activity does not enliven that thing one iota. If you played it in front of a room of, you know, 200 people who had nothing else to do, they would all go, what's that racket? Turn it down. They would not be animated as as that record thinks would be the case. That's my problem with it. Rock and roll, most rock and roll nowadays doesn't rock. And that's a classic example of it. It doesn't engage you at all, physically. And when and it, and this is interesting because this is fifty years ago this week since that came out, and I know it's a long time ago, fifty years. That's the Rolling Stones' Brown Sugar came out fifty years ago this week, and I remember. It's no exaggeration to say when that came out, if you went to somebody's house with that and a couple of beers, yeah, you had a party. You just had a party. Yeah. You put it on, and people could not stand still during it at all. And I think, now I know this Mick Jagger, Dave Grohl record was not Rolling Stones record. And I, all right, fair enough, park that. Park that for a moment. But I think it's really interesting to be reminded of the fact that in the glory days of the Rolling Stones, they were a dance band. That's what they played for. Their greatest records were all records that people danced to. I know people find that hard to imagine nowadays because they think of dancing as something that's kind of done in clubbing, you know, environments and kind of electronic music and post-BGs music and all that kind of thing. But in the 60s and early 70s, it wasn't. You know, people danced to brown sugar. They danced to T-Rex. 
They dance to the sweet. They dance to the sweet. But the Stones, the Stones have, I think, you know, and I agree with that. I, 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 you're absolutely right. It's not, it's not a great drunk dance track, but at least it's got some energy. At least it's got some fire, and I think it's been quite a lot better than some of the things the Stones themselves have done recently. But the things the Stones do is, is have various characteristics that 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 give their music some kind of light and shade and punctuation and swing. And one of them is that they're masters of the offbeat, I think. Yeah. If you listen to Brown Sugar, Brown Sugar is, is on an offbeat. So it's dam da 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 bam da 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 bam da 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 And it's that offbeat that's really exciting. That's what gives it a kind of swing. They also have this trick where they go for a huge high note chorus, you know, let's spend the night together. It's a really good example of that. Let's spend the night together now. That that high note is absolutely thrilling. But the key thing that they do, I think, is a sort of tension and release. And, uh, you know, yeah. um, Honky Tonk Woman's a really good example because it's, uh, you know, I met a gin soap bar on green in Memphis. It's all very restrained. It's just little hi-hats. And, and then when you get to the chorus, but it's, uh, you know, it's suddenly... It suddenly bursts out, doesn't it? It There's does. Suddenly, a massive, great kind of feeling of release, you know. And actually, that's how dance music is. Is um, that's how dance music is, is is kind of storyboarded, if that's the word. You know that you get those sixteen bars of kind of dropout. When there's that tension, you're waiting for something to explode again, and then 16 bars later, bang, it happens. You know? And the Stones really—I I have to admit—the Stones really did have that. And that's a fair point that this new record doesn't have it. But is that—is that, I mean—is that—is that, is that, is that a, a, a fair assessment of what they did? I, I, I think that's true, and I think it's interesting also that if you think of the kind of, you know, the big party favourites, the big dance tunes. They tended to have a bit in them that people performed themselves. When it came to that bit, yeah, they all sang along with that bit, or they all did some they kind all of. All sang along with the chorus of honky tonk women, it, it, it waving a, the finger like Mick. <laughs> yeah, it reached a bit that they could all do. Yeah, that they could all participate in. Whereas this clearly doesn't have that. And now, now, listen, it's not a Rolling Stones record. I just, it just really made me cross because. But can I when just it, say, when it was posted yeah. on YouTube. I think the first of millions of comments was, and I thought it was the best comment, and it got there first, said, is this AI? <laughs> you know, because we had been talking about music know, being created by artificial intelligence. Yeah. And I thought, Yo, God, that really does sound as if it's created by AI. They just no, run it through... Running so, through machines. So write me a kind of punk rock song from 1978. Yeah. You know. Oh, but can I just say one thing in, in Keith's uh, in in Mick's defence is that Keith, Keith Richards would never dare do any of these things. No, Mick Jagger. Actually, Mick actually. Jagger. I know he he fails no, no. a lot of the time. He falls flat on his face. But, but at least go. he has a go. <laughs> yeah, Keith true. Richards would never know. Keith Richards has only done two things on his own, as far as I can see. One is he wrote a book which he wrote with a ghostwriter. Yeah. Uh, okay, so that was a kind of collaborative thing. The other was he put out a record called Talk Is Cheap, which was actually just him and a gang. It was Bobby Keys and Bootsy Collins and various people in whatever it was, 1988. And that was partly because the Rolling Stones themselves had looked like they didn't exist for a while yeah. uh, in the 1980s. And he was clearly terrified that things weren't going to kind of last forever. And Mick Jagger had just made a solo album and it said so he's pushed into it. But otherwise, all the things he's done, he's done new barbarians, expensive winos, yeah. They're just gangs of pals. Live Aid, gangs of pals. He wouldn't have got up there and done something on his own. No. He'd have 
Ronnie would Bob Dylan. Dirty Mac, you know, with John Lennon, Mitch Mitchell, Eric Clapton, or it was, was it? That? It was, I think it was, wasn't it? That's a kind of gang thing. He's never actually had the nerve to go out and do things on his own and stand up and be counted. I know that's probably, probably rather a rather yeah. straight and orthodox thing to say, but I do admire Mick Jagger's kind of courage for, for just for doing it and risking his reputation. Mm. You know, Keith Richards is just, you know, Mick Jagger, we've said before, Mick Jagger kind of runs the Rolling Stones and they're, they're still we hope, enormous. If Keith Richards ran the Rolling Stones, they would be the pretty things. They'd be playing the Hammersmith Odeon, wouldn't they? And, <laughs> and, and you know, and I, 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 just, I just admire I admire him for doing that. And Keith Richards is just one of those guys who's always sat in the back of the class, flicking ink pellets. You know what I mean? And yeah, uh, making wise well, All bands have that, don't they, Alex? They have that dynamic. There's always... Seen, and it's classic case is uh, uh, Paul McCartney, John Lennon. Paul McCartney yeah. is always the guy going... I tell you what, why don't we do this? Yeah. And John is always the guy going, nah. <laughs> yeah. You know, or being at the back of the class. You know. It's it's yin and yang, isn't it? It's it's that equilibrium that is required for all, all, all as, things. Yeah. I suppose, I suppose, so, I suppose so. We uh, also talked this week to the guys here from the Nothing Is Real podcast, who are um who are the proud holders of Ireland's Beetle Brain uh, Award. Quite a number of years running, isn't that the case? I think it is, yeah. They're and, really lovely guys. Uh, they're lovely guys, and we had a really good chat about uh, about the Beatles, which you can find on the YouTube channel. And uh, and one of the really interesting things they said was that uh, um, the difference between John and Paul was that, that John thought having the idea was the work. Yeah. And Paul thought, no, the work is the work. And I thought it was a really interesting way of looking at all kinds of creative processes. Do you know what I mean? That there's always somebody who thinks the idea is the work. And it's not ever in anything. You know what I mean? Whereas when people look at it afterwards, they always look at it in terms of so-and-so had the idea. Well, all right. But, you know, the, the person who did it was the person who did the hard work. That's very true because a lot of what John did, rather like, rather like Morrissey actually, is write fantastic song titles. Yeah. Once you've written a fantastic song, once you've written a song called Instant Karma or uh, Give Peace a Chance or Happiness is a Warm Gun or whatever, then you, you kind of feel that the, the job is done. Actually, although in that case, all three of those are actually fantastic recordings. Yeah, yeah. But it's true. It's the, the idea, isn't it, on paper? Yeah. God, that was a wonderful picture you found uh, on Twitter. that uh, Was it taken by Linda McCartney of, of John writing the lyrics to um, Ballad of John and Yoko? Oh yes, Paul's house. It's just Paul's before they house, go to yeah. to to yeah, record it, was, it. it was floating around on Twitter yes. last night. It is amazing. It's a fantastic picture. Absolutely amazing little details. Him and Yoko sitting on the floor. Everyone, everything there was low. There was no furniture in those days. You sat on the floor. Little yeah. low coffee tables, <laughs> standard lamps. You know, it's terrific. Because they were the only two Beatles on that song, weren't they? They were, they and were. Uh, everybody else was away. Yeah, we we got to stop talking a bit about the Beatles. We can't go on. Oh yes, we can. <laughs> you wait. This is a junction in the word podcast. It separates that bit 
from this next bit. There was that fantastic thing uh, uh, that you sent me, Dave, about, it's from an interview with Rob Lowe, where he, he makes the point that, uh, why be famous these days? What's the point? What's, what is the point of being, <laughs> being famous? It's really, really interesting. <laughs> Very interesting. Because he's, Rob Lowe, historically, has had his scrapes, hasn't he? He was a, was a kind of sex scandal he was involved with. In the well, it's quite interesting, it's quite interesting to look back on that. And that was a big story in 1988. He was attending the Democratic National Convention in Atlanta. And, um, yeah, Rob Lowe, fabulously good-looking, was then, still is now. Still is, still is. <laughs> and, um, you know, and uh, women, you know, scraping them off him at every stage in his, his career. And on this particular occasion, he didn't scrape them off quite sufficiently and ended up being <laughs> videotaped in, the, in his hotel room having sex with a 16-year-old girl, which was over the age of consent in Georgia at that stage, which was only 14. Yes, it wasn't actually illegal. It was wasn't it? illegal I mean, at all. Were, and uh, and the, the illegality was the videoing. And that yeah. was the extraordinary thing that the big story at the time was they videoed it. Yeah. Of course, nowadays, people video absolutely everything at every stage in their lives, you know. So you're not surprised to learn that there's a video. But clearly... It set his career back quite a while. Oh, you know, it did. Took a long time to go. It took over. a long time to to come back. Yeah, yeah. He's come back enormously successfully now. But anyway, as he said to, he was on Joe Rogan, the Joe Rogan show. He said, "What is the point of being famous nowadays? You can't have the crazy fun you used to have." Because well, it's beyond that, isn't it? There's just so many aspects of it. You know, you now you get this feeling that you have to sustain constantly your presence for fear that you'll just be forgotten. I mean, there was the old album, you know, tour, year off cycle, wasn't it? In yeah. music anyway, which worked perfectly. People would make a record, they'd be very, very prominent, they'd tour, then, then they'd disappear. And when they came back, they came back with something new, with a new record, with a new image, with something new to say. And you were, you were really pleased to see them again. You know, you didn't need this, uh, this kind of constant uh, presence from them. And also this idea that, that now you can exhaust your interest in anything by just burning through it on the internet. You discover a musician, you can just hoover up everything they've ever done, yeah. every interview they've ever done, just you're not interested only within a week you're, you're tired of them and uh you know as he was saying any romantic liaisons you might have there's the risk they could be documented you could yeah i mean that's he really says, not, not just the risk he says in the interview he says they're lying in wait for you absolutely and, that, and that, i'm sure that's true you know yeah. if roblo very famous man goes into any public place in america there's a significant minority of people who would like to take some kind of picture that showed him in a bad light. Yeah, exactly. Unflattering. Yeah, just, absolutely. It just wouldn't happen. And on a, on a bigger scale, there's that idea that you are permanently on the edge of saying or doing something yeah. that will completely wreck your career, you know, that will cancel you out and uh, and you'll never recover. I mean, that's yeah. a horrible, insecure feeling. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's another side to this as well. You know, um, time was when when being famous was a sort of, there was creative capital in there in the sense that it was the mark of somebody who was really good at something. Um, for, for instance, now, have you heard of someone called PewDiePie? Yes. But I, only only because I've I've tried to find out why he's so famous he's the world's biggest youtuber isn't he yeah, he plays games on youtube right 
and that's that's what he does. And and gaming on YouTube, basically, what what people do is they they sit there with their headphones on and play computer games and comment on themselves playing computer games. Yeah, yeah. And they do this for you know, 16, 18 hours a day. But it makes them really famous. And PewDiePie, for example, has got 109 million YouTube subscribers. That's nearly as many as us. It's it's almost not far off. Word in your ear. But, you know, the, the, the fame paradigm has completely changed. It's not a mark of you being no, no. good at something anymore. It's, 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 it's kind of incidental. Um, and it, it, surely that takes away the, the end game, the satisfaction of being famous. Because I suppose so. I suppose so. What does it mean? It, yeah, yeah. I don't know if that bothers the people who, who experience that, actually, because they've got some kind of, um, you know, they've got some kind of uh, a collateral that they could exploit. But I, I just, I can't help but think it's miserable. The, and also the level of celebrity is so much greater. You know, if you were in the 70s, you could be a rock star that was famous only to those small number of people who bought your records and might have seen you in a concert. But now you're you're just it's ubiquitous. Yeah. And the idea of the, of the iPhone, too, that if you're walking down the street and somebody wants to take your picture, if you, that that's an incredible intrusion. You know, the idea that you're, you, you've got to stop your day and allow that to happen. And if you don't allow it to happen... They will pillory you for not allowing it to happen. Actually, it's funny because I, I saw a photo on social media this morning of uh, Noel Gallagher in the supermarket. Somebody had uh, clearly just gone up to him and asked for a photo, and he had he had a face like a smacked ass. I mean, he wasn't yeah. happy at all. Yeah. <laughs> just, well, was he not wearing his mask? Because we were talked about this, didn't we, recently? That that it was uh, who was it? Gary Barlow. It was Gary was Barlow, which I thought was really interesting. Gary Barlow, you know, he gave his interview saying that, that that actually he was really enjoying. This was the beginning of lockdown last year. Actually, he was really enjoying the fact that he could go to all these places he'd never been before. Where he he's go to Sainsbury's, you know, he could go he'd go anywhere at all with a kind of baseball cap on, maybe a pair of shades, and I was like, no one would have the faintest idea who he was. And that yeah. was really interesting. It also gave you an idea of just what a what a isolated life it is to be that well known you know? i'll tell you what wearing a mask <laughs> recently because I, I went to the west end the other day and uh and wearing a mask you know out in public or whatever <laughs> draws your attention to the fact that you're robbed of the major means of communication that english men of a certain age use which is a kind of nervous smile to each yeah. other yeah. It's, just, it's just what you do. Yeah. There's a kind of apologetic smile, isn't there? It's what yeah, you do when you go into oh, shrugging, I'm not, hopeless. I'm, We're both the same. I'm age. not really here to buy anything. I'm just, I'm just kind of having a look, or yeah. you know, whatever. And um, and you don't have that anymore. You can be doing it behind the mask, and nobody's seeing it at That's all. That's true. They're just seeing these the, the whole passive expression is muted. Yeah, 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 we're evolving to expressing a whole new strand of eye language then. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not. Anyway, I I was uh, in the West End and I'd been promising myself for a while that when I go in the West End, there's a few CDs I wanted to get. And so I went looking for them, not in a very organised fashion. I didn't exactly comb the West End. Although if you want to go and find record shops, even in the West End of London nowadays, they're few and far between. They are. They're hard to find. And... Um, Anyway, I got, I got, I got some things uh, this week. But what struck me was that if you go looking in in the racks of CDs nowadays, under a kind of well-known established artist with a significant catalogue, which is most artists probably nowadays, you know, that they won't all be there, you know. 
And it struck me that the CD is just slipping away. And I, I actually, I, I thought I'd, I'd do a sense check. And I spoke to an old mate of, of, of mine who's involved in the record business. And I said, am I right that the CD is just going to disappear? He said, yeah, I think it is. He said, he said, for a start, there's nowhere in Britain that manufactures them. Yes. And the other thing, which I never thought of, is there's nobody that distributes them. Because that's what it used to depend on, was there were thousands of shops, and they were supplying those thousands of shops with a certain number of new releases, and then a certain number of, oh, we need a, you know, a copy of Hard Day's Night, two copies of Sergeant Pepper or, or whatever. We're going in there absolutely all the time. So the upshot is that they're going to be even more valuable, aren't they? That they're well, that going to really appreciate them more. I think that might be the, that <coughs> might be the case. You know, I think that what 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 clearly happens is is that you stuff's reissued. But for instance, I got this this week. This is three live albums by Hot Tuna, Mark. You, oh, you, I love them. Oh, my God. It's, it's, got, it's got, you know, Hot Tuna. It's got first pull up and then we'll pull, pull up, down. then pull down. Yeah. And, uh, and then it's got double dose. So you can get the three Hot Tuna, uh, you know, live albums in one three CD package. But you probably find it hard press to, to get those individual records, you know, individually. Yes. Yeah, uh, everything's reissued. Things are reissued with extra tracks or in really expensive versions but the work a day day in day out this is the catalog this is how it came out i think that's going to disappear and i think that's got to make a difference to the way we think about music in in, in the fullness of time because people who collect nowadays it seems to me collect lps they do because they they like them and they're you know they're big and they they advertise but that is that that's an aesthetic thing isn't it it's and also it's what collectors buy i suppose people who buy cds are people who wanted to buy or, or own the music that they bought to listen to and play whereas you often buy vinyl because it's just a beautiful thing to have yeah. to yeah. play it but that's a really unusual record it's got a, you know, some kind of rarity about it yeah the thing about vinyl is, is that those sleeves have real character They've got their coffee stains. They've got their cigarette burns. They've got the little name written on the corner that you wrote when you were at school. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I don't know, all that kind of stuff. Whereas CDs don't seem to have that to me. They don't seem such beautiful things. And there's that risk that they're they not, break their they're hinges. Not, they're absolutely. They're not beautiful. They're horrible in lots of ways. Yeah, yeah. But they are, you know, the, 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 the standard units of buying a physical representation. Yeah. Yeah. Of, a, of, a, of an LP. And artists still like to think they make an LP, don't they? Yeah. No matter how much people might, you know, behave in a different way, the users don't don't always recognise that. But uh, you know, it's like this this story about um, Taylor Swift remaking early albums because well, that's a copyright thing, isn't it? Because she, she, yeah. she, she doesn't own the copyright of the very early ones, I think. No, but I think right? it's also that if you make your version available for streaming. You can, you know, you, your stuff will supplant the earlier stuff on streaming. Oh, you see okay. what I mean? Because yes. it's, it's just out there. You know, it's not that people are buying the, the new version. It's just that they're accessing the new version when they go and stream those tunes. But ultimately, on, that's on getting Spotify. more revenue for her, though, isn't it? Uh, possibly, possibly. Yeah. 
but uh, you know, I just thought it's really interesting because, you know, that that's that's a Charles Dickens book. Now those Dickens books came out in parts, didn't they? At the yeah. time, you know, monthly parts or whatever, and then they were published. And ever since then, if you wanted Martin Chuzzlewit, there it is. You can hold it in your hand. You can go and buy it. Now, does the same apply, you know, to James Brown's The Payback if you can't <laughs> go and buy it? If you can't go and get that thing and hold it in your hand? Because it can float out there in the streaming world forevermore and people can really enjoy it. But they're not enjoying that thing. They're just enjoying access to loads of James Brown. They're, and we, we they're enjoying it. a random chapter from that thing, aren't they, I suppose? There's a section from it. Yeah. And uh, I just think, I think they are going to go up in price. And I'm not saying they're ever going to be the fetish items that, that 12-inch LPs are. But I think they'll be a lot more treasured than they are now as they disappear. Because that's what happens. Because, you know, the, the era when all the LPs were in the bargain bins was at the time nobody wanted them because they all wanted CDs. Because they wanted the CD alternative. Yeah, equivalent. And then, you know, you, so you go through a 10-year period where nobody gives a shit, and then suddenly, ah, hold on. And I think we, we may be coming to the end of that 10-year period with a CD. So don't throw anything away. That's what I would say. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.